Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. Please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 84, if you would, please. Psalm 84. This is unarguably my favorite psalm because it speaks so clearly to the pain of the human condition. And it speaks so clearly to what we are to do when we are faced with that kind of pain. Yesterday, my wife and I had a tough day. It was one of those difficult days where we were able to hear firsthand and to see firsthand some of the ugliness of sin and its effects upon people. I can't go into the details, but suffice it to say, we both left that experience with tears in our eyes and broken hearts over the ugliness of sin. I think that's one of the great missing truths today of our worship experience is we do not understand the sinfulness of sin. One of these days, soon, I'm going to be preaching a message on Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And my heart's burden in that particular two verses of scripture is that we don't understand not by works, lest any man should boast. I don't believe that even the most devout of believers fully comprehends what the Bible means when it tells us it is by grace we have been saved. And the reason for that is because we do not see the sinfulness of sin. Well, that's for another day, but let it serve as the backdrop for what I want to talk about this morning. Psalm 84 is a psalm in which I believe a key principle of Christian living is to be applied and understood. Now, I want to lay it out for you this way. Give me a moment to help build this particular principle and try to understand where I'm coming from. We are talking about developing a spiritual legacy. That is the umbrella of this series on the Psalms. We want to be able to pass certain things on to our children and to see that our children do it better than we do. We want to pass certain things on to our grandchildren and to see that our grandchildren do it better than their parents did. And on and on and on we go. And so certain principles I believe emerge out of the Psalms that become somewhat of a fulcrum or a turning point, at least for a man my age. When you come to the stage where you're a grandfather and you're looking at your children and you're watching your children raise their children, you want to know that they're doing it better than you did it. That certain principles have been caught so that other principles can be taught. And when you see that happen, there is great joy in your life because a generation from now, 40, 50 years from now, those children will be teaching their children and their children's children hopefully better than we've done it. And so when it comes to that legacy, 
What are the key points? What are certain principles I want to know without, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I have taught my children and that my children are teaching their children? There is no greater principle than the one found here in Psalm 84. Let me see if I can explain it to you this way. We live in a fallen and broken world. We do not fully comprehend how fallen and broken it is. Because for the most part, most of us here do not experience the kind of brokenness we saw yesterday. Most of us do not see the ugliness of sin the way we did yesterday. And its devastating effects, effects that are caused by bad decisions, decisions that affect the lives of others, and on and on the pain and the agony goes. We read about it, maybe see it in the news, or we view it from afar, but for the most part, most of us sitting here do not understand the ugliness of sin. We've experienced it to one degree or another, and we say we know what we mean when we say we live in a fallen and broken world, but we really don't. I remember back in uh, my doctoral program, one of the books assigned to us was the writings of Francis Schaeffer. In fact, it was called Letters to Francis Schaeffer. And uh, I got that book shortly after we lost our son, Mark, and I would read anything or everything that could give me some sort of hope or some sort of light in the middle of that darkness. And Francis Schaeffer, being one of the brighter minds of, the, of my generation, who has since gone home to be with the Lord, used to run an organization in Labrie, Switzerland, where students from all over the world would come to ask questions, tough questions, questions of pain and suffering and heartache. And many of those students would leave disillusioned because the answers aren't as easy as we would like them to be. And so many of those students would write letters to Francis Schaeffer in response to their time at Labrie. And these letters were published in this particular book and his responses to those letters as well. And I read every one of those letters. I read them with careful caution and, and with open eyes and an open heart, trying to find some glimmer of hope. And repeatedly, again and again and again and again, when these horrible, horrible things were happening to people all over the world, Francis Schaeffer's reply would be clear and simple. I don't have any answers. We live in a fallen and broken world. Our world is broken. Our world is fallen. And because of that, the pain, the heartache, and the suffering is incredible. And the sinfulness of sin is something few of us comprehend the way we should. I want to build the principle for you and then prove it from Psalm 84. Life in this fallen and broken world is going to bring us face to face with incredible spiritual warfare. Incredible spiritual warfare. I thought yesterday I had heard everything until I heard what I heard. After 37 years in the ministry, you tend to look at people who are afraid to tell you what's happened because they think you're going to think something about them in a wrong sort of way. And you want to reassure them and say, look, you're not going to tell me anything I haven't already heard. You're not going to shock me. And I have said that on countless occasions, but for some reason yesterday, I didn't say that. And I'm glad I didn't. Because the suffering that I heard yesterday 
is beyond description. I can't get into it to you because it involves all kinds of legal issues and what have you, um, but I can tell you this, it woke me up to something that may I, may, I may have been lulled to sleep about, and that is we do live in an incredibly fallen world, and there is incredible spiritual warfare going on around us. But the principle is this, while we are engaged in such spiritual warfare, the solution or the way in which we deal with this warfare is not what you might think. I don't know about you, but my tendency, probably your tendency as well, is when you're hurting, you want to stop the pain. Whether it's physical pain or emotional pain or spiritual pain or relational pain or marital pain or financial pain or grief pain or whatever pain you're experiencing, our tendency when we are involved in pain from the time we're little children is to stop the pain. Make it go away. And we will do everything and anything possible to manipulate our circumstances, control our environment, take whatever steps are necessary to get rid of the pain. And I suggest to you, no, I say to you, from the authority of God's word, that is not the right response. The right response when you are involved in that kind of incredible pain that comes from living life in this fallen and broken world the response you ought to have is the response that David had. The response to pain is worship. It is to worship. To embrace the pain as your friend, the stimulant, if you will, the catalyst that drives you to worship. Now that is completely contrary to our human condition. That's completely contrary to our first response. I don't know about you, but when I put my hand into a fire accidentally, my first response is not to say, well, you know what? I'm going to keep my hand in here for a while. My first response is what? To pull your hand away. When you burn yourself with a pot, to pull your hand away. Why? Because the tendency of man is to recoil and to reject and to fall away from pain. The natural inclination of the human heart is to say, I don't want to hurt anymore. Psalm 84, beginning with verse 1, tells us that God alone, God alone determines the means by which a man may approach him and worship him and thus experience him. We do not worship God our way, we worship God his way. Otherwise, it's not worship. Parenthetically, may I suggest to you that most of us, myself included, are way too casual in worship. Way too casual. The fear and the reverence of God is just not there for many of us. We assume, by the way, the word assume means to divide. We assume that God is going to accept our worship. We assume that we are doing the right thing. And yet the casualness with which we prepare ourselves to worship, the casualness with which we worship, and the casualness with which we apply the worship when we leave here is such that in many cases, 
becomes irreverent and the worship falls on deaf ears. David's cry of the soul is clear. The key to spiritual discernment in the middle of spiritual warfare, the key to spiritual discernment is to be in the presence of God and to worship. If we are to stand alone as the truth around us becomes more and more obscured, and it is, as we look around our world, what is true is becoming more and more obscured and fewer of us are standing up and many more of us are bowing down to lies and innuendo and half-truth spiritually. But if we are going to stand alone when everybody else drops down, we're going to have to learn the vital dynamics of Psalm 84. Let me give you the background of this psalm. David is in hiding. He is running from his own son, Absalom, who sought to kill him. Can you imagine that? Your own son seeking to take your life. And David is put to flight. And in the process of being put to flight, he no longer has access to the tabernacle of God, to the temple of God. He's away from the people of God. He's away from the temple of God. And he longs to be back there. He's homesick. He's homesick for the temple of God. He's homesick for the people of God. And there in the cry of his soul, we see that the road that is paved back into the presence of God is the road of worship. The journey from despair to joy is the journey that David is about to take us on. And that journey cannot be made from despair to hope, from grieving to joy, from mourning to laughter, unless we know how to worship, unless we take our pain and present it to God in the spirit of worship. Life is filled with difficulty. Many people are on that journey from despair to hope, some of you. And many are on a journey that they don't want to go on from joy to sorrow. And some of you will have to travel that journey as well. Some want to travel the journey from pain to healing. But there will be some of you who will go from healing to pain. And whichever way you're traveling on that road, the principle remains the same. The worship of God. It's like the song says, in his presence, that's where I belong. In his presence, that's where I am strong. Do you believe that this morning? In his presence, that is where you are strong. In his presence, that is where you belong. Whichever way you're traveling on that road. But if you are trusting in yourself, manipulating your environment, controlling your circumstances, recoiling from the pain so that it doesn't hurt, rather than embracing it as a friend that draws you into the presence of God, if, if you are trusting in yourself, you will have absolutely no inclination toward or any need for worship. 
And may I even suggest that if you came here today without a sense of urgency, you probably are trusting in yourself. And in essence saying, I don't need you, Lord. If you prepared yourself for this experience with casualness, and maybe even a little bit of coyness, if that's the right word. If you came here today just out of curiosity, but there's no real heartfelt need for you to be in the presence of God because you've lost your strength and you need to be filled and you need to lay bare before God. If none of that is there, then in all probability, you are trusting in yourself and saying to God, I do not need you. And so David begins the psalm, verse 1 of chapter of Psalm 84. He says, and by the way, these superscriptions are important. Uh, they give us a little feel or a sense for what's going on here, and, and in particular this one, as you'll see in a moment. It says, for the director of music, which means that the psalm was intended to be sung in worship. He wanted you not only to read this psalm, but sing it so that it became a part of you, to chant it to let it become your spiritual mantra so that you'll not lose sight of its principles. According to Giddith, we'll talk about that in a moment, of the sons of Korah, and we'll talk about that in a moment, a psalm, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. This psalm is called, by the way, the pearl of the psalms, and it is addressed to the director of music, and you'll note there, the director of music the musicians that were handling the worship in the body were the sons of Korah. You say, so what? Well, Numbers chapter 16 gives us a little picture of the sons of Korah. You might want to follow along with me in verse 1 because sometime before this psalm was written, we see our first indication of who these sons of Korah are. These are their offspring. These are their children, generations removed, David is speaking of. They are now the worship leaders in the body. They are the sons of Korah, the genealogy, the offspring of the people we're going to read about in number 16. Korah, son of Ishar, and Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, etc., became insolent and rose up against Moses. The greatest saint in the Old Testament, the type of Jesus Christ, is Moses. And this tribe of Korah became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. Give people a little authority and watch what happens. They came as a group. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron. Have you ever had a group come to you to oppose you? I have. Have you ever had people sign a petition against you? I have. Have you ever had groups of people walk into your presence and accuse you and serve in some sort of insolent manner against you and call it their Christian duty? I have. I have seen incredible pain and experienced incredible pain at the hands of those who became insolent. I can only imagine what Moses must have felt because I have tasted it, have you? They said to him, you have gone too far. Imagine that. 
the type of Jesus Christ, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy. Every one of them. And the Lord is with them. We not only have this petition and this charge against you, Moses, but everybody that signed it is holy. Everybody who agrees with us is holy. You, Moses, are insolent. Every one of them. Why then do you set yourself above the Lord's assembly? You know, Moses is a type of Christ. And he held a rightful place above the assembly. God had placed him above the assembly as a type of Christ. The one who reigns supreme in his church is the Lord Jesus Christ. He holds a rightful place above us, which means that we have a rightful place beneath him. It's when we believe we are above him and that he has gone too far in dishing out the pain we are experiencing that we become insolent. You've gone too far, Moses. Now, what was Moses' response? You know what? I have this rod in my hands. It's worked some marvelous things. I watched that rod bring frogs galore. I watched that, that rod bring fire down from heaven. I watched that rod divide the Red Sea. I'm going to use this rod to destroy you men. Did he say that? You know what his response was to this opposition? Look at the next verse. He fell down on his face. He fell down on his face. And he said to Korah and all his followers, in the morning, the Lord will show who belongs to him and who indeed is holy. And he will have that person come near him. And the man he chooses, he will cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers and tomorrow put fire and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You, Levites, have gone too far. So the battle lines are drawn. Moses, in essence, says, you come and bring your worship. I will come and bring my worship. And then we'll see who's holy, who has been set apart, and who has gone too far. Now, when you drop down in that Numbers passage, chapter 16 to verse 23, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the assembly, Move away from the tents of Korah. Move away from the tents of Dathan and Abiram, his cohorts. Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He warned the assembly, move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them, or you will be swept away because of the evil of their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives, their children, and their little ones at the entrance to their tents. Then Moses said, 
This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. I'm relieving myself of all responsibility. Whatever happens next is God's doing. But this is how you'll know. He said, if these men die a natural death and experience only what happens usually to men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new, I could preach a whole sermon on just those words, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them, and they go down alive into hell. Then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. If they die a natural death, then the Lord is not with me. If the Lord does a totally new thing and opens up hell itself and sucks them in, then you will know that these are indeed wicked men and that they have treated the Lord with contempt. As soon as he finished saying all this, teach your children this. I know it's scary, but if they're going to understand the sinfulness of sin, they need to understand what comes next. The ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them. You ever hear the expression, you can't take it with you? Not true. <laughs> Not true. Look at what he says next. With their households and all Korah's men and all their possessions. Doomed to destruction. They went down, what's that next word? Alive. Into the grave with everything they owned, the earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries. Can you imagine what that must have been like? At their cries. As hell itself is swallowing them up the Israelites fled. I'll bet they did. And they were shouting, the earth is going to swallow us also. Now they had already aligned themselves with Moses. They were not aligned with Korah. And yet when they saw the sinfulness of sin, alienation and separation from God and what it looks like, the awfulness of that condition was more than these men could handle. They did not approach worship with the kind of casualness we do. They ran away. They fled. Because they sensed that the same lot that was given to Korah deservedly could be given to them. The Lord or the earth is going to swallow us too. Now, you got the leaders of worship of Korah. Remember, they have their censers 
God told him, get your worship leaders out there. It says, and fire came from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. The awfulness and the sinfulness of people who believed that Moses had gone too far. The type of Christ who were going to dictate the terms just as we do when we say to the God we serve, why have you made me thus? Failing to see that he who makes out of the same lump of dirt a vessel for honor and a vessel for dishonor has the prerogative of directing even the most difficult of pain into your heart so that you might be drawn closer to him and see his glorious riches. You say, why are you telling this story about the sons of Korah? Because when Psalm 84 opens, the sons of Korah are leading worship. You say, so what? One word. You know what that word is? Grace. Here is, if there ever was a picture of God's marvelous grace, it is in the fact that now, as David opens Psalm 84, the very offspring of these rebellious men are in the heart of the temple, leading the people of God in worship. It was to them he directed Psalm 84. Talk about grace. Even in the ugliness of your past and the sins of your parents and your parents' parents, that have been visited three and four generations, there is the mercy and the love of God. You who were the victims of abuse, incest, rape, you who live in the present with an eye on the past, a painful past that you can't let go of, it is to you Psalm 84 belongs. It is to you, God says, if I can do that with the sons of Korah, what can I do with you? If I can extend mercy this way to those who were sucked alive into hell, what can I do for you? The love of God demands it. These men were the sons of God's marvelous grace children of the rebellion against Moses. They became the finest of the Levites who served in the temple. They didn't live in the sinfulness of their parents' past. Something happened. They were in charge of the meal preparations. They were in charge of the music ministry. They were highly respected men who were loved by the masses. They held positions of great prominence and privilege in the temple. That is why I call them children of grace. According to Giddith, it says, sweeter than the wine press. That's what it literally means. No music could possibly be too sweet for what the psalmist was about to write. No sound, no language could be expressed any more articulately and any more beautiful. The psalm is divided by David himself into what we call selahs, or strophes. That's what the word selah means. It means take a breath. Read what I just said 
read it again. Take a breath. And then take another deep breath as you get ready for the next Selah. And you'll see it again that David divides the psalm accordingly. He says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. You see, David, in his alienation and separation from the temple, longed for the worship of God. And he longed for the people of God. For the devout Old Testament and New Testament saint, there was nothing, absolutely nothing that could interfere with their corporate worship. Nothing. No cold, no ball game, no picnic, no outing, no visiting relatives, nothing, nothing could separate them from taking that day in which God would call his people together in order to worship. Nothing. And their children learned that. He craved the presence of God because you see, earth contains no sight so precious to God as the sight of the assembly of his people together, properly worshiping him. For David, this was not something he took for granted. In fact, for David, it was something that broke his heart because he couldn't get there. He craved the presence of God. That's why this psalm is often called the heart of the cry of David's soul. But what made the tabernacle so attractive to David? Why did he say, how lovely is your dwelling place, your tabernacle? Was it the outside structure? Well, it couldn't have been because David ne never saw the temple built. The temple would be built by his son Solomon in all of its majesty and glory. What David's tabernacle looked like was a tent of war. In fact, that's what it was. It was the place where the wars were planned. It was the place where the people worshipped. It was a place of dank and at times dark meetings. It was a place of dust. It was a place of temporariness. It was a place where they moved it from place to place. There was no glory in the outer structure, but there was something going on inside that structure. It wasn't the bricks and the mortar he was attracted to, because you see, the temple David was remembering was more suited to dirty pilgrims and to weary travelers than it was to people of great stature. Now it was what happened inside the temple that caused David's heart to yearn after God. As with Moses and the tent of meeting and the tabernacle in the wilderness, there was little to look at from the outside. But when you went inside, when you entered that holy place, you could hear, you could see, you could smell, you could touch, you could feel the worship of God in a holistic way. Every sense was touched. All of the symbols, the golden vessels, pointed us to the one who is more precious than silver and gold. The high priest in his garb pointed us to the great high priest who would once and for all enter into the holy of holies and relieve us and forgive us of the same sins of rebellion that were in the heart of Korah. The incense becomes our prayers that become a sweet-smelling savor to God. All of these symbols, what you heard, what you saw, what you smelled, what you could touch, all pointed us 
to the bigger picture, the type of what was to follow, the type that is Jesus Christ. Because you see in that tabernacle, they celebrated the great themes of sin, the great themes of forgiveness, of atonement and mercy. And in that temple reverberated the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, as the high priest would speak of the finished work of redemption. Here, you and I sit on the other side of that cross to which all of those symbols pointed. If David's heart yearned to be in that place where he experienced these things in symbol only, how much more should we who are on this side of the cross able to see how that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ Praise him and worship him for his marvelous grace today. How is it that we on this side of the cross can become so casual when God has made it so clear all that he was doing, all that he was pointing to? David longed for this. He says, how beautiful, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. The word he uses there is tabernacle. It's the same word that John uses when he speaks of how God, who in the beginning was the word and the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, the word used there is tabernacled amongst us. Same word. The word, the creator of the universe, became flesh, Jesus Christ, and tabernacled among us. He made his dwelling place among us. Do we crave that dwelling place the same way David did? Do you know, on this side of the cross, he goes one step further. He says, you, 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 all of you who have trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are not only the dwelling place of God among you, I have made your body a temple not the tabernacle, not the type of what was to come. I've made your body more glorious than Solomon's temple in all of its radiance. I've made your body my place where I will tabernacle. I will dwell among you. I will dwell in you. Can there be any clearer representation of gospel truth than this? The loveliness of being in the presence of God is enhanced when one is no longer there. When you're not in the presence of God. When you're alienated, alone, detached, whether it be because of your own pride or sin in your life or the infection of sin in another's life, whatever causes you to be alienated from your God is only appreciated. We only appreciate that presence when it's no longer there. He says in verse 2, my soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Note the words he uses there, soul, heart, flesh. 
There's an inward yearning. My soul yearns. There's even a painful yearning. My soul faints. There's a prayerful yearning. My heart cries out. There's an intense warning or an intense yearning of the soul when David says, my heart and my flesh cry out. You see, just as worship is a holistic experience, alienation from God is a holistic experience. When you're alienated from God, it ought to hurt. It ought to hurt physically, emotionally. It ought to drive you to where you say, in his presence, that's where I belong. What am I doing here? He says, you know, even a sparrow, verse 3, has found a home. And the swallow, a nest for herself, where she may have her young. A place near your altar, O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. He's remembering the birds that were hanging from the cages in that tabernacle. They would put them there so that they could produce the melody for the songs that were being sung beneath, so that there would be an antiphonal singing of man and creation together. And David says, I'd like to be one of those birds. I'd like to be one of those sparrows sitting up there in the cages. My heart yearns, my soul cries out. Have you ever noticed in your own life that when you're in rebellion against God, very little inside of you cries out to God. We just look for more ways to rebel. Many of you, and you know of which I speak, many of you are in rebellion. You're alienated from God. And rather than crying the way David does, Rather than expressing your desire to be in the presence of God, you're looking for ways to cover your tracks. You're looking for ways to include others, as Korah did in his rebellion. You're looking for ways to make your case, to manipulate your circumstances, to control your environment. Do you understand the ugliness and the sinfulness of your own sin. It's not until you do that you can ever understand what mercy and grace is all about. And so David begins his psalm by saying, how lovely it is to be in your presence. And do you know when he said that? When he was alienated. When he was separated. His heart yearned to be back there. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust Him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.